The William Morris Agency, I don't know if you've heard of it, huge, biggest talent agency for movie stars. They had four floors in that building. And I used to see a lot of actually movie stars come and go there. And there was a movie network made in that building. This is Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of long-standing members of the Irish community in New York. Our centerpiece for this episode began his journey through this world in the village of New Inn in the County Galway in Ireland, before heading even further west to New York in 1971. There is a place on the island of Ireland called County Galway, named for that country's greatest, most western city. County Galway is a place of two halves, two worlds for that matter, one old, one less so. Galway City, a world unto itself, sits between them, watching over the flow from one to the other as it crosses the River Corrib. The lands of County Galway take up a large swath of the province of Connacht stretching along its entire southern flank, a province where many of the native Irish fled when England's Cromwell offered them only one other option, that of hell. Many were forced as far west as the beautiful yet unforgiving landscape of Connemara, taking with them the ancient Gaelic-Irish language, where the city of Galway sealed it in like the cork on a cask of fine aging whiskey, keeping it there for the rest of us, for centuries, lest it diffuse and evaporate into the ether of a pervasive foreign culture of a conquering empire. But many did not go all the way to Connemara, and it is in the eastern half of Galway that we find ourselves, the world where Pat Lally hails from. East Galway itself has both a northern and southern flavour to it, but let's have Pat guide us from here, through the corridor of South Galway that he calls home, taking us along the historical pathways that are, along with golf, his biggest passions. Galway is a huge county. In the county proper, aside from Connemara, going way out to the west, you look at the county itself that's more inland. New Inn actually is in the centre of that portion of Galway. The village of New Inn is 12 miles roughly west of Banlasloe town, which is kind of my hometown, even though I'm closer to Loch Ray. It's a very historic town, Banlasloe. Going back in the 1800s, it had the largest fairs in all of Europe, I believe. There were sheep and cattle, and particularly horses, were bought and sold. And uh, the horses, of course, in the 1800s were used for war. And it's reported that a horse was bought there that Napoleon used. And it continues to have a horse fair every year. It always has a show. It's a, it goes on for a week, and they come from all over Ireland, from north of Ireland, southern Ireland, everywhere. It's still carried on and always will be as a tradition. Now, of course, it's, it's gone down in size. They also have show jumping. They have show jumping grounds right there in the middle of the town, next to uh, the Duggan Park, which is where they play hurling and football. There is an old Irish saying for when things go very wrong, and it is, Ockram was lost. 
Here's the story behind it. Just west of Bandeslaw, you had Ockram, which is famous, of course, for the Battle of Ockram. And it is reported that it was the largest land battle ever fought on the British Isles uh, over all the years. And that is quite a feat. Uh, something like 8,000 were killed on, a, on one afternoon. I looked up recently where it was only a five or six hour battle. And 8,000 men died on a Sunday afternoon. Unfortunately, they were winning the battle. St. Ruth was the general in charge until he had his head uh, blown off by a cannonball. And Patrick Sarsfield was put in the rear to guard and he was not to move until he got orders from up front. And that was the problem was when Ruth was killed that Sarsfield never got the orders to move and it could have saved the day. But anyway, that's all in the past. And of course it was deciding because it decided who uh, controlled events in Ireland and William of Orange won the battle and while there was a later siege of Limerick which went on but that was decided because Limerick was pretty much starved out. A treaty was signed and then all of those Irish warriors if you want to call them had to leave uh, what has become known as the Wild Geese and went to France and formed brigades in France in the French uh, you know, army. And they became known otherwise as famous fighters as well. And of course, it was replicated by Spain, uh, sent forces to Ireland at times, as did the French. You could go to Mount Bellio, where Bellio was a very famous name. They were fighters in Europe too, the Bellio family. Not in France so much, but maybe in Hungary and other areas like that. And they were mixed background, you know, they were Protestant, or they were maybe Catholic, some of them. In my area as well, there's uh, Woodlawn House. It's derelict now. Well, derelict, but it, it's still a fabulous-looking structure, a huge mansion of a house. That was given to the man who fired the shot that killed Ruth. And his name was Trench. And 6,000 acres. And it was built right close to where the railroad runs, Galway to Dublin Railroad, because we're kind of centred in that area. And actually, the, the main road from Galway to Dublin ran through our village of New England at one stage. But then they moved it to Loch Ray, but you were going off at an angle. I guess it was to bring business to Loch Ray because it was a sizable town. But now that has all changed again, of course, with the highway. Loch Ray is a town with a big lake. It was also, you could say, where the GAA, in actual fact, was discussed and where it, you could say it was founded. Except for the fact they wanted Bishop Duggan to be the patriarch of the GAA. The GAA, the Gaelic Athletic Association. But he turned it down because he was up in years. But all the, the talks leading up to the foundation of the GAA were in Lockray Town. But uh, Dr. Duggan, or Bishop Duggan, nominated a man that he knew very well in Tipperary. And that person was Archbishop Croke of Cashel and Emley. And he became the... Um, the patriarch of the of the G, and that's why it is said was founded in uh, Thurlis and Tipperary. In R and in the county Galway, one pleasant evening in the month of May, I spied a dancer. Let's hear now about Pat's childhood. 
Well, I was raised on a farm just on the edge of the village of Newin. We had a sizable farm. We basically supplied almost everything from the farm to the house and what have you. We had cows and we used to do the separation of milk and we used to do churnings. My mother used to make the, the butter. We had hens who supplied the eggs. We had geese. We had turkeys. And we had cattle and, uh, and sheep. We did not grow corn. It was not suitable for growing corn. But we grew potatoes and turnips. We had an apple orchard. I remember coming home from school, I'd have to clean out the cowhouse. That was a standard uh, practice. Uh, I even brought lambs into the world on a cold, frosty night. Much of the work Pat did on the farm was under the direction of his oldest brother, Mihal, ten years his senior, who went on to inherit the farm, lock, stock and barrel. As was the custom, the family land went to the eldest son, to keep it in the family name and to avoid diluting it into unsustainable smaller portions. Other children in the family were usually asked to head out into the wider world and figure it out for themselves. But it was a great experience to spend time on a farm. Of course, at the time you don't appreciate it because you're young, but there was always something to do when you were, you were close to nature. My father came from a building background. His father was a builder. And my father was a, a general foreman for a construction company, mostly in the west of Ireland. And he did building from, I think, Mayo down to Cork at different times. Did a lot of building in the city of Limerick, a lot of building in Ennis, and even in Galway City. Uh, there was a time when they were building 300 houses at a time. But he was a terrific worker. My father was a very healthy man. Never knew him to be sick in his life. He had tremendous energy. And he'd be up and he'd be out of the house uh, on, a f- on a Monday morning, gone to work. And we wouldn't see him sometimes again until Saturday. He was not a farmer. When all my brothers were younger and all the family was young, he was to hire men to run the farm. And a brief pause now for this message. Come one, come all to the 10th annual Julian Dubuque International Film Festival, April 18th to the 25th, downtown Dubuque, with daily film showings, evening events, filmmaking panels and question and answer sessions, and a big time street party. There's much to enjoy. And of course, our Monday free day. Details found at julianfilmfest.com. All city COVID restrictions will be observed. Bring your mask, keep your distance, and sanitize those hands. And of course, have fun. And back again now to Pat Lally. My mother came from Peter's Well, County Gawi, near Gort. Her maiden name was Head. She was the oldest of four girls. Her father, unfortunately, passed away at 43, 1919, I believe, from the flu. And he, he lost a brother at the same time. What was it, the Spanish flu at the time? We often hear now especially of the flu which killed millions on the heels of the slaughter of World War I. Many were taken by this virus in the southern portions of Galway, which was for a time, it might be said, the epicentre of the epicentre. So that left my grandmother with four young daughters and no man, and they had a sizable farm of land. I never really did get the details, but it was a tumultuous time in Ireland with uh, the War of Independence and then the Civil War and what have you. She moved to New Inn around the late 20s and bought land there. The land came on my mother's side. Then my father and his father built the house. 
the house that I grew up in. She was a terrific woman, my mother. She was a housewife all her life, and there was eight in my family. I had three brothers and four sisters. She, she married at 18, a very young age, but she was the eldest. And actually, when they moved first, her three younger sisters moved with my grandmother into the house. And then my father moved in as well, but he had to provide until they were 21 years of age. Then they moved on and went to school, and one of the sisters went to England. Another sister went there, became a nurse, and uh, the other sister married locally in UN. My mother was loved by all of us and her neighbours, and uh, she was a very loving woman. She passed away in 1995. When did your father pass away? He passed away in uh, 1987. Ireland might be the only country in the world that has a smaller population now than in the middle of the 19th century, when an avoidable great hunger left millions to die of starvation, an event that temporarily distorted and diverted the psyche of the Irish nation away from its true Celtic spirit, and one which set in motion a culture of leaving. Large families was the order of the day in an Ireland of the past, but emigration kept the numbers in the mother country low, while fueling an Irish diaspora far greater than the little island nation would suggest. Pat himself grew up in a family of eight children, four girls and four boys. Here's a quick rundown. Moira the eldest, then Francis, then Sheila, Michal the eldest son who got the farm, Jim the grey fox as he was called on account of his premature grey hair, He's also the father of the famous singer Michelle Lally, then Breda, then Pat himself, and then Tony, the youngest, the one who carried on the building tradition of his father and uncles. And yet, most have managed to stay and make a living, often a good living, in Ireland, reversing the outward trend and a testament to a more prosperous country, once the epitome of poverty, and a country with, for the first time in almost two centuries, a growing population. Of the eight, only Moira, Pat and Tony are in the States. Among them, these siblings have gone on to have 38 offspring of their own. Pat's own wife, Anne, came from a family of 13 children, and a rough count of first cousins across Pat and Anne's line brings us over 60. Six siblings survive to this day. Michal has gone on to his reward, and one other sibling of Pat's is no longer with us. My other sister, Breda, unfortunately and sadly passed away two years in June. She was the youngest of my sisters and possibly the healthiest of them all. She loved golf, played a lot of golf. She traveled quite a bit and did not look her years, but she got cancer in uh, 2017, lived for about a year and a half and um, passed away and I, I really miss her because she was my contact really because she was close in age to myself. Her husband unfortunately had passed away seven years before her and he was a wonderful man. He was a, he retired as a gardener superintendent and uh, he was a native of Sligo. I miss them both because I, if I was to go to Ireland now I, I would meet up with him to play golf and you know you, you, when you're getting older you look forward to those years and it's, it's the way of life of course. And, uh, The Gaelic-Irish sports that hold the biggest grip on the Irish imagination are hurling and more so Gaelic football. 
Usually a county is strong in either one or the other, while bigger counties, including Galway, have strong traditions in both. But each locale within the county, and the country at large, is fervently for one over the other. This preference, region by region, is another way to create your map of Ireland. What's the more popular sport around New Inn? Is it the football or the hurling? Oh, hurling. The football was played, but it's not really football country. The club in New Inn, it's called Sarsfields. It's, it's reported that Patrick Sarsfield, after the Battle of Ockram, went through the village of New Inn. But they won two county championships in 92 and 93. But they also went on to win the All-Ireland Club Championships in 92 and 93, which was a tremendous feat for a very small village, one of the smallest parishes in all of Galway. Yes, it brought great fame. I mentioned where I do I come from now. I mentioned people from Tipperary or Kilkenny. I says, well, I'm some village in New Inn. Oh, really? You know, it's actually the, where Sarsfield's hurling team. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, Sarsfield's a hurling team. Everybody's heard of them. So it's, they brought great fame to the little village of New Inn. After I left, <laughs> maybe it was a stroke and look, I left. <laughs> but they, they actually, uh, in 1980, they had members of the team that won the, the McCarthy Cup after 57 years uh, of a gap. And that was a tremendous, and Galway hurling came roaring back. But even though New Inn is a bastion for the game of hurling, it is still acceptable to love Gaelic football as well. North Galway, Dunmore, Tume, Corrafin, Hedford, Moylock, Mount Bellew, of course around Galway City. That's the footballing area where all the greats came from. The, the Donlins, uh, Sean Purcell, Tume and Frankie Stockwell, I saw them play. Purcell is regarded as the greatest Gaelic footballer of all time. And I actually met him at a race meeting in Valley Britain a number of years ago and I have a photograph of him which I treasure. He was my childhood hero. That was a fabulous team of the 60s. The three in a row. They were almost a professional team the way they behaved. I went to the four All-Irelands in a row. 62, 63, 64, 65. And I was in secondary school. Let's journey again to Pat's early years and his time in boarding school where again he displays a keen eye for grandeur a trait not uncommon among the people of East Galway, where quality knows quality. The full name of the, of the school is St. Joseph's College, Gerbilly Park, Banlaslow. I, I boarded there, actually. And what a piece of property is unreal. I mean, there was an obelisk there to a dog that died. It's about 75 feet tall. The gardens are fabulous. They used to play croquet on the lawns. I actually, when I was a student there, it was still going on, the croquet. Imagine that. Garbley is an old landlord's residence, Lord Cloncarty. During the time of the famine, they did help out with the locals to uh, provide food as, as much as they could, I believe. You know, they, they weren't like a, a lot of them, you know. I, I have read many times that they were a very, um, you know, you had the good landlord and you had the bad landlord. And you had the other ruthless and, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. It also had gardens down at the back, and of course, when I attended there, they were let go and all. There was like a long walk, I would say it was three quarters of a mile, and on either side were pine trees, growing, gosh, 30 feet high. And it was like an Appian Way type of thing. It had a gravel walkway on it, 
And at the end of that walkway, over the ridge, I think it's the Esker that comes down to the centre of Ireland, and it passes through Bandeslaw. They put cut stone steps all the way up to the top of that. That is probably still there, although I haven't been there in a number of years. And it, it must have been just unreal in its day, because you walk three-quarters of a mile with these pine trees on either side, and it was just glorious. And then below that further was a walled-in farmyard where you had everything, glass houses or what have you. It also had, from the house, it had an escape tunnel in case they were attacked. And I, as a student there, I went down in the tunnels. And you could go down and, and almost stand at full height. And at the end of it, one of them led to a kiln, underground kiln. I believe it's all still there. And there was tremendous stuff around these, these uh, old landlord residences. A sport that was and is of critical importance to the identity of Garbally is, in fact, a foreign English game, though it isn't soccer, which was more easily associated with the grubbier, poorer, urban English with whom the destitute Irish would compete on the filthy factory floors of the Industrial Revolution. It became known as a rugby school. And uh, even though they played hurling and football, but the emphasis was on the rugby. In my time there, there was a Father Ryle, and believe it or not, he was the main proponent of rugby. And you won't believe this, he was a Kerry man. <laughs> a Kerry man into rugby. It seems there is only one sport in County Kerry, Gaelic football. Yes, he was very much into it. They had very good rugby teams. They used to play, I remember the games, they used to play Black Rock in Dublin. They played various schools wherever rugby was played. Maybe there was something of, of, of a status attached to it. You're talking 60 years ago now almost, and you, you try and bring your school up. An, an Irish Ivy League type of thing, you know. Garbally has produced at least one rugby player who excelled at the highest levels, Kieran Fitzgerald, who led Ireland to two triple crowns in the 1980s. In a famous moment in Irish rugby history, he was heard to shout the words, Where's your pride? at his teammates, when they'd fallen behind in the deciding game against the English in 1985, rallying them to victory. Let's dive back again into the life of a boarding school student in the Ireland of the 1960s. There was also priests there that were um, colourful, let's put it that way. And there was a father, Keyes. He was a Connemara man. Believe it or not, well, you probably will believe it, his nickname was Tough. And that he was. He was tough. And I'll give you an instant. We used to have to have lights out and, and silence after 10 o'clock at night. In the big rooms they had there, we'd, they'd fit seven or eight beds. And we had seven or eight guys there. And of course, you know, guys, young fellas, we'd talk, we'd talk and talk. And, you know, making jokes and what have you, cursing one another out, whatever. Back in those days, the next thing is the door opens wide at about 10.30. And in comes Father Keys. And he had a tough look to him, a ruddy red face. And he had a cane in his hand and gave us all three apiece on each hand. And he always had a saying, that'll learn you, which is not good grammar. 
the purpose was that it was not good grammar. That will learn you. In other words, correct yourself. He'd left, and about 10 minutes later, we were back talking again and cursing him out, that son of a gun and what have you. I forget the language what I was doing. It wasn't as bad as today. Anyway, let's put it that way. <laughs> but um, he arrived back about 25 minutes later and gave us the same again. Well, needless to say, there was no more talking after that. It was excessive at the time, although, believe it or not, we never held that against him. Of course, we would prefer not to get it. That was the time, you know. Now, I'm talking only about my experience in secondary school there in Banlasloe. I've heard stories, yes, and some of it was excessive. It, it can be excessive. He was the only one, I think, that did that. We had some excellent priests there. There was a Father Cassidy. He went on to be Bishop of Clanford. He was a male man. Beautiful man. Beautiful priest. And Father Tough wasn't just tough on the boys. His pastime in the college was breaking horses. He had a student there, one student whose father was a member of the Galway Blazers. And I won't mention the name. He was to take the son and have him ride the horse. And he had a long rope and he had a paddock where he'd have the whip in the hand and, and, and break the horse in, into a riding like they did in the Old West type of thing. Train the horse like that. Now that wouldn't happen today. You may have caught a mention just now of the Galway Blazers. Let's have Pat explain that one to us. Well, I've no authority on them now. Crockwell is the hometown of them. I saw them coming through the village, God, it must be 15 years ago, and they're riding their horses. And it was a wonderful sight to see. They were fox hunting, and they had the distinctive Galway blazer, the red blazer. Probably started as Anglo-Irish. I don't know if they discriminated against Catholic, but there would be large Catholic, uh, wealthy Catholics uh, who would be in it now. They're still there, but they wouldn't be near as active. After Garbley, there was a stint in agricultural college, a few months as a nurse in a Limerick psychiatric facility and working with his father on the buildings. But despite a great love for his father and an admiration for his ability to labour hard even after his official retirement, Pat didn't care for building, and here's at least one reason for that. What turned me off a lot was building the single house, and even in the large ones when it rained, and you know how much it rains in the west of Ireland especially. You go through about a foot of muck going into a house, and then when the house had no roof on you, and you'd be doing work inside, it was pouring rain, it's coming down all around you. It's not a pleasant thing. I'm sure they have better ways of doing it today, but it didn't turn me on, really, the, the, the building industry. Pat was having some difficulty picking his lane, but with a sister long established in New York, America seemed big and broad enough to be worth the go. It was the 29th of June, 1971, when I arrived here. The day before, there was a killing in Columbus Circle in uh, New York City. Joe Colombo. He was shot by someone that was paid to assassinate him at an Italian civil rights meeting at Columbus Circle. And he was shot. He belonged to uh, the mafia. I always said he stole my headlines. <laughs> you know, another Paddy arrives in New York. That would probably be it. 
<laughs> the mention of the date of his arrival in New York brings Pat back briefly to his younger days in County Galway. We used to have a, a bog and we used to hire a man to cut the turf. And of course, I used to wheel it on the bank. I don't know if you're familiar with it, bog cutting. And I was with him, Paddy Hardiman. He was a wonderful man. He worked for us for a number of years. He was cutting turf. And I was wheeling it out to the end of the bank. And uh, he'd, he'd throw it up to you and you grabbed it and you'd throw it on the wheelbarrow, the turf barrel, because there was no sides to it. It was just a front to it and a flat where you got as much as you could on it. And then you went out and you turned it on its side. But anyway, we were cutting turf there on the 29th of June, 1963. And in the distance, I heard this. And I see two helicopters coming. From the distance. Hey Paddy, look at this. Look at this. Two dark green helicopters. And they practically went right over us. Because like I said, we're on that straight line from Dublin to Galway City. helicopters was JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, on his way to Galway City. If uh, the day was clear enough, and if you went down to the bay, and you looked uh, west, and your sight was good enough, you, you, you would see Boston, Massachusetts. Back to New York and for Irish immigrants to the U.S., also a more innocent time. My uncle walked me out one day, took me over to a social security office, and I walked out with a social security number. Of course, that's a whole different story today. Indeed it is. And for that story, that long story, we will wait for a future episode and explore it more deeply then. Pat soon found himself in the field of managing the heating and air conditioning of large Manhattan buildings. As an operating engineer, becoming certified in this work, he spent his entire working career in New York doing this, beginning at the unusual address of 666 Fifth Avenue, and from there he moved to another building with interesting occupants. 1356th Avenue, which was known as the MGM building, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The William Morris Agency, I don't know if you've heard of it, huge, biggest talent agency for movie stars. They had four floors in that building. And I used to see a lot of, actually, movie stars come and go there. And there was a movie network made in that building. It was an empty floor, and they designed the whole floor. And uh, actually, some of my bosses or the owner's offices were used for, for the background in uh, some of the scenes from network. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! From there, it was on to 787 7th Avenue as his career advanced and he rose in the ranks, before going to the famous Tiffany & Co. to finish out the last 20 years of his career. The opportunity at Tiffany was enough for him to break ties with his union. But like everything in life, there was some good and bad at Tiffany, and even some ugly there by the time he wound up. 
A man that I knew over at 787, who worked for a company there, called me up. He said, I had the position over here. It's a small crew. He says, there are great benefits. The pay is quite good. You don't have a union. And I just like the name, the, the fact of Tiffany and Company. It turned out to be a good move for me, actually. For 15 years of that, it was great. Now, towards the end, I have to say, though, the company went corporate in around 2000. And then everything started to get in. They were checking every little detail. I heard this from vice presidents, even. They didn't put much faith in their employees. And there was employees there for 35 years. When the crisis happened, it was actually, in my view, it was a benefit to end the time there. Like, even though I did like it, but the, the whole environment had changed. They got tight fisted, you had to account for every little dime and what have you. I, I got this from my bosses, they told me. They, they were there a number of years, even longer than I was. And uh, he, he told me he walked out of his office one day and went over to Central Park to clear his head. They wanted accounting for every dime of his money spent. But I did enjoy, there was the, the senior manager there were very nice. Some others did come in, they do the they do the movements and what have you and everything is you know by paperwork and uh, everything is strictly done and then you have human resources and what have you and uh, issues went on that uh, you could see the change it wasn't favorable so in some ways you were happy to get out at that yes point. yes behind the working life there was always pat's true life that of his own house and with his family but even here with a nose for things historic as keen as the tracking abilities of a hound in the service of the Galway Blazers, Pat does his research. I live in Northwest Yonkers. It, it doesn't have any other name for, except the, I think they call it the Monastery Heights. It's a very nice neighborhood. Yonkers was known as the city of gracious living at one stage, believe it or not. And you can see it with the houses that I've seen around the neighborhood as you go down towards the Hudson. Fabulous houses. They're still there, even on Park Avenue and Yonkers and area. Lo- lovely area, like, but it has changed, you know. Gracious living. <laughs> it's hard to find those areas <laughs> anywhere now, so. I wasn't ready to retire exactly. But around the same time as I was leaving Tiffany, my wife Anne passed away. And I had a lot to cope with, and it was a difficult time. How old were your daughters when your wife passed away? 27 and 25, yeah. And uh, she was a great mother, and she was a wonderful person, and uh, came from a lovely family from Williamstown, County Galway, the Erratican family. What, what, uh, what took her, was it? Cancer. Cancer, yes, breast cancer, which is a very common thing. It's still going on even to people today, to late women today, and uh, it's... Um, it's, it's one of those things, you know, it got my sister as well in Ireland. It wasn't breast cancer, but it was another form of cancer. And uh, eh, you, you don't know. it's hard to say when your time is up, when, you know, when your number is called, you, you just have to, you know, you have to believe, and that's the way life is set out. And his children? Jennifer is the eldest, always excelled in school. 
right from the beginning. They went to Catholic school, not in the parish where I live, but up a little further north, St. Anthony's. She ended up being the valedictorian of her year. And we went on to high school in Good Council Academy in White Plains, where she ended up being valedictorian there as well, in a year. Despite tremendous competition there, a mixture of students and all the rest. And she went from there then to uh, Boston College. She hasn't looked back since. And she's now working for Penguin Publishing. She's married to her husband, Rich. My second daughter, Siobhan, she's about just under two years younger. She went to the same school, did very well in school too, loved basketball and what have you. She went to Good Council Academy as well. And she went on to uh, Mount St. Vincent and uh, graduated from there back in 05, I believe. And she's currently working for Montefiore Hospital in administration. She also has two beautiful little girls, the apple of my eye. And she's married to Michael McKeown, who came from Woodlawn area. That's Woodlawn in the Bronx, one of the last, if not the last, visibly Irish neighbourhoods in America, not to be confused with Woodlawn, County Galway, and its big house. Anyway, let's hear more about those grandkids. Cecilia is the eldest. Six in June. Going on 15, almost. And Molly is the second one. She's two and a half. Different personality, but a character. Really is a character. Beautiful child, too. They are delightful girls, entertaining, uh, unreal. It's just amazing, like, what they can do with children. Of course, that's the time. They're not afraid of anything. I I help out, you know, with the babysitting and all that, because they're both working. My daughter and uh, Siobhan, my daughter and her husband, they're both working. I see a much tougher deal they're having than when they themselves were young. Pat is a man that digs into the heart of things. He develops his beliefs after careful consideration of the information presented to him. He listens. And once those beliefs are in place, he is a man of conviction. This is an older, more thoughtful form of creed development that we don't see in the heat of today's partisan, knee-jerk and polarizing alignments of opinion. In this, the world can relearn a thing or two from Pat. Our conversation turns, of course, to the faith into which he was born. I ask him if his Catholicism has been a mainstay for him throughout his life. Yes, it has. And it still is. But it did go to a test period. I think anybody will agree with that. They all questioned it at times, especially over the last 20 or 30 years. You felt ashamed for an Irish person because we have such a, a strong affinity for it, and most most Irish people, not all Irish people, have a, an attachment to it, because the church stood by us in difficult times. They really did. They were there with us and fought for the Irish people in many different ways. You can't forget that either. But what I will fault them for, they knew this problem existed. And I'm going back to the time of President Reagan. They knew this was going on. There was others as well. There was Covenant House here in New York had a priest. It turned out that he was having some kind of interaction with a young boy. One of the children that comes in off the streets 
It was shocking, really, at that time. I blame the hierarchy. Colonel Law, it turned out, up in Boston, was really, did not do his job as a colonel. They may be brilliant in certain ways, these men, and I'm sure they are. But the way I look at it is, they are human. They're not above doing things that any person can do. The church can be like a, a bureaucracy. It is a bureaucracy. They never give up the ship. They'll never admit to wrongdoing, hardly, ever, as long as they can get away with it. It's a huge institution, and it is the world's oldest institution, isn't it? So I've processed all that. I never stopped going to Mass. I might have missed a few here and there. Uh, I haven't told my daughters this. I even considered maybe going to an Episcopal church. But then I discovered that they were no better either. I decided to go to Israel in 2019. I wanted to see the Holy Land. And it, it gave me more reassurance even. Going to all the sites. Jennifer said, I'll go with you. And she did. And uh, it was a great experience. One of the nicest things I had was a beautiful morning. We took a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And I even have a bottle of water at home that I took out of the Sea of Galilee. I swear to God, you could, you could drink it, how clear it was. And I have looked at it many times. I still have over half the bottle. I consider it holy water. If Jesus was there, well, what's to say? It's not still holy. It reassures me. After a while, I wonder, well, what's life about? What's it all about? And I do believe the church is um, the Catholic church. One of the things about present-day Ireland is that I understand the reasons, you know, because of the, um, the pedophilia that went on there and why people would be disgusted, especially in Ireland. It was so, such a Catholic place and a lot of other things was gospel to them and what have you. But Ireland had such a close association with the church. They gave some people in the past gave their lives for it. They were offered food during the famine if they changed their religion. And they rejected it. What takes its place if you give up the, the church? What takes its place? Again, go back to what I feel. is: What's your purpose in life? And what do you pass on to your children? Pat is a former president and remains an active member of New York's Galway Association. He mentions the difficulties of putting a decent succession plan in place, something which plagues many Irish voluntary organizations in New York. The people who were there for years kind of made, a, made it a club of their own and kind of protected it and, and sometimes rejected younger people. Even though they were wonderful people in their own way, they were fearful of younger people coming in and changing it and what have you. And it got the name for that. And it hurt it because when they all passed away, there was very few people to take and, and had no interest in it. But Pat has kept his hand in, despite the frustrations, and has developed his own vision for the future of the organization. It's difficult to get young people, because the purposes of the association are founded for don't exist anymore. But it can be used still. I believe in educating young Irish Americans. And not necessarily young, but, you know, there's a certain stage in life. They like to find out, well, where my people come from, you know. There's so much history there, you know, and... Uh, we're not exposing them to that enough, I believe. And they're around New York, I know it, because I run into them all the time. At a stage in life, they want to take an interest, find out more about Ireland and it, what it went through. They don't have, all of them don't have a great knowledge of the 
history of Ireland, and in particular Galway, and what we have been talking about. The battles and how, how the present situation in the north of Ireland occurred. And now a message from our friends at the Celtic Irish American Academy in Galway City. Celtic Irish American Academy is a two-week summer program that takes place in Salt Hill, Galway each July. High school students from a variety of states have attended our last four programs. It helps them to gain a deep appreciation of their Irish culture and heritage and also to become more globally aware young citizens. Students stay with host families in the seaside village, attend classes in St. Davis College and enjoy a variety of traditional activities and excursions. My name is Brian Fagg, Director of the Academy. If you are interested in your children or grandchildren attending, please contact us through our website. And that website is CelticIrishAmericanAcademy.com And back again now to Pat Lally. I'm still learning about situations and how they occurred and who was involved. If we become more of a cultural and have a connection to Galway County and maybe Galway City in particular, as it is a forward-looking city now, and you maintain that connection, you don't know what can develop from that going forward to keep that connection with Galway County, in particular Galway City. Let's educate the people out there. And that's why I still believe in it. It's 140 years old, and it'd be a shame to let it just die out. As we finish up our conversation, Pat brings us back one more time to his childhood and the countryside of County Galway. I was thinking the other day when we used to cut the hay, and we cut it with a, a mower, like attached to a tractor. And you'd be cutting along, and the next thing you see all the birds rising out of it, and you'd, and you'd also hear the cuckoo in the distance, and it was, it was delightful. It was like the beginning of spring or whatever. It brings back memories to me. I don't know if they ever hear the cuckoo over there anymore. Jennifer, Pat's daughter, has been here with us during our conversation. Let's give her the last word. You know, I learned a lot here today listening to my dad. My love of learning and that innate sense of curiosity has come from him. And my dad has always been such a proud Irishman and Galwegian in particular. He's a great dad, yes. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a review for us there, or a rating, we'd appreciate that. Be sure to keep in touch on social media at CenterpieceNY. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y. You'll also find our podcast at CenterpieceNY.com. And you can email us at CenterpieceNY at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our interview with Pat Lally was conducted in March 2021 in the Library of the New York Irish Centre in Queens, exercising all social distancing and safety protocols, including face masks, and Pat has even been vaccinated with two jabs. No foxes were harmed in the making of this podcast. Not even Foxy from Wanderley Wagon, or Jim the Grey Fox Lally, for that matter. 
The New York Irish Centre would like me to mention that it is the grateful recipient of grants from Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and New York City's Department for the Aging, along with fantastic community support from listeners like you. 